the space just felt really white. People were skinny. It felt like there was only one way to be queer. Hey, I'm Kay Anderson, and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there, and the people that they used to know. So, it's fairly well established that I think queer spaces are really quite significant and an important way to explore your identity and dip your big toe into the queer lake of fabulosity. Yep, I'm going to go with that, the big lake of fabulosity. But what I don't really talk about all that much is the importance that I have found in my life of queer performance spaces specifically Uh, and like when I was starting out as a singer-songwriter most of the places that I would play were straight venues which were a bit weird and I had to kind of selectively choose which songs I would play there but when I got to play in queer spaces it was just really liberating and freeing and I had this ability to just sing all the songs about fellatio that I didn't get to sing in straight bars. Anyway, that was my way of introducing this week's guest, comedian extraordinaire Natalie Cardo, who found a queer comedy night at Giant Dwarf in Sydney early on in their career and says that it helped them to be brave and try different shit and step into their comedic excellence. So much so that it inspired them to set up their own night, Gag, that we will find out more about during this conversation. And before we get into the chat, I just want to say that if you are an astrology queer, or if you are a big fan of Myers-Briggs, then apologies. Lots and lots of apologies, because we are coming for you in this conversation and uh, we're not leaving any prisoners. Why don't we get into it? Um, so, okay, to put you right on the spot, let's start off with what is the difference between performing to a queer audience and performing to a non-queer audience? <sighs> wow. Performing for a queer audience, I feel they, first of all, are appreciative. They love what you have to offer, especially as a a queer peer. <gasps> queer peer. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> they understand how much um, work goes into things. I think non-queer audiences can sometimes be a bit like, you have to impress me. And especially with, I think, the things that I want to get away with on stage, which can sometimes be like spicy jokes or like... How spicy? Well... I, um, I'll often make fun of like white people or straight people or like punch up and talk about racism and things like that, which queer people are like, yes, roast me, like tell me. And they love it. And then straight people are just like, they're not often there for it. They feel a bit called out. But it's just us queers here right now. So you can tell me your roastingest, that's not a word, your most (gasps) horrible joke about straight people. Oh, my God. I'll put you on the spot. I'm sorry. Yeah, you've put me on the spot. Uh, I think mostly they're all about white, white people. And then there's jokes about the queer experience. Okay. Well, 
can I ask the same question, but about white people? I mean, I have to say I'm white. I have to <laughs> disclose that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Which one's my favorite? Oh, so one of my favorite jokes, you can decide which demographic it's about. But I say um, I've been through a breakup recently, about four years ago, and I see them everywhere. Every time I see a blonde girl with a messy bun, I still think it's my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> ah, it kills on stage. But um, so that is about a white straight person conjoined. Uh, you're just lucky that I am not rocking a man bun right now. I just have to say. <laughs> Do you like it? You don't know what's under this hat. <laughs> No, that's so true. I don't. It could be a bob. Could be. Could be. Anyway, okay, so let's move on from that. So what drew you to comedy in the first place? Like why were you interested? It's interesting because I was mm -hmm. thinking about this the other day in the shower. And, <laughs> yeah, and um, so small contextual backstory it's so long, but I'm going to shorten it. Growing up, I was very, very, very shy and I had bad friends and I now know I'm autistic. So I would very much keep to myself. And I remember specifically like thinking of jokes or funny things to say, but I'd keep them to myself because I was like, oh, this is not going to land and people don't understand me, etc. And at school I would do drama because I always wanted to be like an actor, performer. But I would do like classic theatre, like Greek theatre, and do like straight acting. And I always thought that that was going to be kind of what I did. But then when I was thinking in the shower the, the other day, I was like, oh, I was like really young. I might have been like eight or something. And I had a, a list of like all these comedians that I loved and like looked up to. Oh. And it was like Whoopi Goldberg. I know it was so like Whoopi Goldberg, like Jim Carrey and stuff like that, you know, the, the greats. So I always had such a fondness for comedy, but I think I was so repressed and didn't feel like I could express myself that it's something that I just completely shut away. And then... It was after high school and four years after that that I finally was like, I need to perform. And so I joined a university sketch review, which, you know, we get together and we do a bunch of sketches mm -hmm. in a, a one show. And it was for people of colour, like it was an identity society. And I said we were doing like this brainstorming session on the first day and I told this story about how my white friend took me to get a Brazilian and she was like oh don't worry it'll take 10 minutes and then I was like actually in there for like an hour and everyone was like laughing laughing they were like you're so funny you're so funny and I was like really like I just I just said something factual that happened to me and then I realized I'm funny and I had just never had the people around me to kind of echo my experiences to relate to me or to even want to hear what I had to say. And then from there, I was like, oh, I love comedy. I just think um, it's a great way of reaching people. And usually the stuff that I want to say is intended to make people think. And I think comedy is the best way to do that because it disarms people. But essentially what you're saying is that if you'd never had a Brazilian, you might never have followed your destiny. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So actually that white friend is the white saviour of the story because she made me have that epiphany. Oh, there's always a white saviour in a story, yeah. Mm. There's mm. always. <laughs> I, I owe my whole career to her, really. Thank you. But okay, so this, um, but you joined this society before you had that epiphany. So you must have had like some inklings. I think I had an inkling. I was like, yeah. And I had done, I dabbled in comedy in high school and stuff. I just never thought that it was allowed to do it. Look, I'm going to give you an anecdote, and this is so funny. In year seven, first day of, like, high school class, we get into geography. 
And I had a plan in my mind. I was like, I'm going to be the class clown. (laughs) I'm reinventing myself. This year I'm going to be the funny one. Yes, (laughs) literally. And then guess what? First five minutes of class, someone's being like making a ruckus. She's boisterous. She's loud. She's making jokes. I turn around and it's this redhead and I'm like, oh my God, you're the class clown now. I was like, I can't do it now because you are. Yeah, she saw my dream. Couldn't you have transferred to another class? (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me, miss. Um, I had big plans in this class and now I can't do them. Please switch me. Um, No, I just, I dwindled. I think that's what I, I tend to do is I just dwindle. And I think now I know that it has a lot to do with my autism. But yeah, I think it's really interesting because I think the whole time it was just a matter of permission. I was like, am I allowed to do this? So picking up on this word dwindle, do you mean like you kind of just regress into yourself? You just yes. turn down the knob? Yeah. Regress, shut down, turn down the knob. I'm kind of like, if you don't want to hear from me, then I'm just uh, not going to give you yeah anything sort of thing maybe it's a bit spiteful <laughs> no 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 but I could I totally relate to that like none of these people are jiving with me I don't know why I said the word jive sorry but none of these people are jiving with me I need to just be invisible yes absolutely definitely a form of invisibility also echoed from I think my friends at the time that I already felt invisible. Mm. Um, For example, like we would go out to watch a movie and then they'd be like, oh, my God, Nat, we watched this movie. It was so good. And I was like, I was there. (laughs) (gasps) Yeah, and it happened all the time. How big was the fan group? Oh, my God. It was like eight people. It's like, come on, you can't miss me. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's why this geography class was like a clean slate. And that's a big thing for me is mm-hmm. like if I can uproot and kind of be authentic in like a certain space, I kind of need that refresh. Mm-hmm. But it all goes a bit awry, doesn't it? If your old world suddenly collides with your new world and then you're like, oh, I'm paralyzed. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Definitely. And I think that's why to this day I don't want to talk to those people. Because I'm worried that I'll suddenly be like this, like, 13-year-old scared oh, wow. little girl who, like, couldn't express themselves. What? So you're just not going to go to your high school reunion? I mean, I, that, that's a terrible idea. Why would you go? Yeah, why would we, you? I didn't. <sighs> we had we had it uh, in the last, I think it was, like, in the last three years. It was the 10-year reunion. When was it? Three years ago or something. And I just didn't go. I did not go. Were you tempted? No, not at all. No, I wouldn't be either. (laughs) Yeah. Especially because like most of my high school career, I was cognizant of being queer and I even came out to people when I was 15. So when I was in year nine Mm -hmm. and I didn't have the best experience kind of after that. And then I spoke to other queer people in high school and they're like, no, I'm not going at all. And I was like, T, oh. let's not go. You could have been like the queer brigade and you could have just like taken up lots of space. I know. <laughs> like, and we enter yourself. in slow motion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, 20 years, that's when you can do that at the 20 year reunion. Yeah, exactly. I'll be rich by then. Yeah. So oh, then yeah, I'll go. totally. Um, so can we talk about that then, the, the coming out experience? We can. What happened? Um, so I had always known that I was queer and I had a friend, a lifelong friend who came out to me as gay. So I was like, oh, maybe it's okay to tell some people. Like I just felt a bit emboldened to do it. And then we were at Carol's in Coogee. Coogee's one of our Sydney beaches and they were doing Christmas carols for the families at like 9 p.m. or whatever. And I was so succumb to like the atmosphere and I don't know like the lights and the jolliness 
maybe it was really camp as well. And I just felt like I had to tell people that night for some reason. So we were having like drinks at a friend's house and I was like, guys, I have something to tell you. And it was like this massive, like dramatic moment, like a big confession. And then one of my closest friends who I'd known like most of my life was like, are you lesbian? And I was like, no. And then they were like, are you bisexual? And I was like, I think I am. And then we all cried and like I was hugging everyone and it felt like such a weight off my shoulders and it was really lovely in the moment. But then after that, we literally like never spoke about it ever again. And I found out a few years later that there was a group chat <gasps> or a Facebook event. Yes, it was dedicated to bullying me and someone else. <gasps> and they had made comments that I was too affectionate towards them and it made them feel weird. <sighs> and get this, the cover photo was from when I had them over at my uncle's house in Byron Bay and they covered my face with Ryan Gosling's face. What? <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> Sorry, to, I'm not trying to make it's light ridiculous. of it, but wh why? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> because I, I, I had a big crush on Ryan Gosling. Like, I loved him. Uh -huh. So they were just like, let's erase Natalie. But anyway, <laughs> um, I know, I know. It's funny that that seems to hurt me more than the actual comment about, <laughs> about me being affectionate. But no, after that comment... I really, again, dwindled and I became less affectionate with my mum and my sister Aww. and overall, no, it really like, it really affected me because I am an affectionate person by nature. And then I just like, I was like, I can't touch anyone. Otherwise they think that I'm predating on them. Speak like So speaking of, this has just reminded me of something. We're going to have a little quick segue and then we're going to come back onto talking about you. So sorry, I'm making it about me very quickly. But when I first moved to London, I was Tell like, me. right, I'm going to be an affectionate person from now on. I'm going to make this work. And so I would be like the person that would like hug people hello and like, you know, be like, oh, yeah, and be like chummy. And it was just so, was so unnatural and so weird. And then like as soon as I got the feedback that it was just too much and gross, I was like, right, okay, cool. Never doing it again. <laughs> oh, my God. Who said it was gross though? I don't know everyone I, I, like I can't remember but like it was just weird it was just not natural for me right they could tell that it it was being forced or, would you, or it was just because of me but like either way I was like right that's my permission oh. to just never try anything new ever again and here I am <laughs> that's so sad <laughs> um anyway so you said that your friend came out to you before you came out and you also said that there was another person that was being bullied through this Facebook group. Are they the same person? No, 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 different. So ah. the person that came out to me as gay was a, f a Colombian friend that our parents have known each other. So we grew up ah, together. Okay, so they of. went, didn't go to your school. Yeah, and this other person that was bullied incidentally now has come out as queer the kicker is that most of that group who bullied me is now queer. Oh. I just happened to know it at 15 years old and tell them. And it took them about 20 years, which is fine, but don't bully people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but even if you don't turn out to be queer, maybe don't bully people. No, no. <laughs> Period. No, just don't bully people ever. And I think, you know what, I think it was jealousy. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, it was them not being able to channel their own frustrations in a productive way. But I know this isn't the, like the important question to ask at this time, but what celebrity was covering the face of the other person on the Facebook <laughs> page photos? You know what? I don't think they had one. <gasps> That's why I, that's also why I mention it because it was, it was, it was my uncle's house who had them over and they just covered my face. Mm. But I mean, like, 
in some ways that's a compliment because they didn't even bother with the other person. Yeah, it is. They felt really threatened. But but you didn't find out about this until a few years later that they'd set up this Facebook group. Yeah. Well, so this all happened, the group chat, it's so weird. Like, so I came out when I was 15, I was in year nine. Mm-hmm. And this all came out in at the end of year 12. Ah, okay. So that was three years, like just kind of, like I said, we were just pretending that. I wasn't queer and that I'd never said anything. Ah, but so did it go back to like how it was or was there this underlying current of this is a bit different and weird and stilted now? Yeah, I think definitely weird and stilted and I kind of felt like things that I did were, I was like, what am I doing wrong? And it was just like received the wrong way or I would see people kind of, looking at each other after I said something or oh, that's the awful. weird part is I know is that I actively tried to leave that group since year seven so it was like 13 years was it 13 seven eight nine it doesn't matter all <laughs> of high school I was like trying to sit with other people trying to remove myself and for some reason I just kept getting dragged in Oh. Even though they didn't want me there. It's so weird. Yeah. I mean, but that's kind of like high school friendships down to a T, right? Yeah. Like kind of parasitic and strange. And they're all still friends. <gasps> but not you. No. And that's by choice. And I'm yeah, happy why would about you? Yeah, it. Yeah. Fuck them. Yeah. Fuck them. Um, yeah. I want to pick up on what you talked about earlier in that when you were growing up, you were always shy. Yes. And that... I don't think you said this, but I think I'm projecting that like comedy helps you come out of your shell. Yeah. But I think my question really is, did you overcome your shyness in order to get into comedy or did comedy help you overcome your shyness? Oh, that's such a good question. Interestingly, I think what really pushed me was a massive breakup. And I would have been... I think like 23 and I just realized that like my whole life I kind of been living to like please other people and I knew that I wasn't confident I knew that I was shy but I just had like an epiphany I was sitting on a couch and I started just thinking of all these jokes and I started writing them down and at the time I was working at a comedy venue at the Mm -hmm. bar and I thought at that time I was like, oh, I think I'll do stand-up. Like I I love comedy. I'll do it, but I'll do it when I'm like 30. I'll do it like when I'm middle-aged. I'll do it when I'm really confident. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. There's just a quick spoiler alert now. You don't suddenly become confident when you get older. Sorry to just burst that bubble of the 23-year-old you. Okay, carry on. Very sad. And then I was thinking of all these jokes and I was like, maybe, maybe I'll just do it now. So I had already started in that sketch group, the POC comedy thing. But after this breakup, I was just like, I'm going to do like everything. And then I just went really wild. Like I signed up to an open mic, which I would never do. I started doing drag as a boy which I was like, wow, because it takes a lot mm. of guts. And I did this like open mic tribute performance to share as a competition. And that kicked off like a series of, like now I just sometimes perform as Cher. Uh, what, which era of Cher are we talking about? Oh, 80s. Oh, okay, 80s. good, good. Uh, sometimes I do believe. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's for the straight audiences, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it goes down a tree. Um, so, do you remember then your very first time of performing solo? Yes. Yeah. Talk me through. How tortured were you that day? Well, listen. <laughs> my stories are just you. You won't believe this. Okay. So the first time I did stand up, I had invited my sister. Because I was like, I'd love, first of all, the moral support. And also, you know, like, I want to see her. This is like, I want her to see me for this mm. huge moment. And part of me thought she's probably not going to come. 
but I'll invite her anyway. And then I'm on my way, I think in an Uber or something, and I get a call from her and she's like, hey, I'm going to be there. And I go into panic mode because I realise most of my set is about being queer. And this is a problem because... Because <laughs> she didn't know about it. She didn't know about it. And how old am I? I think, yeah, like 23 or something. So I get there and I see her coming in and, like, they're literally about to start. We both sit down. I think we got some drinks. And then the MC's kind of walking on stage and the house lights go down. And I was like, hey, I need to tell you something. And she's like, what? And I'm like, I just had to spit it out because we had no time. So I was like, I'm bisexual. And she was like, okay. But she was more shocked at the way that I was telling her and like the abruptness and like it was almost, it was almost rude. And so we didn't speak at all during the whole evening. And when I got up, I could hear her like laughing at my jokes. Like it was, it was very nice. And then the night ended and she was like, yeah, that was really good. And then we just spoke about it. And then she had all these questions and, like, you know, we spoke about it, which was nice. I think the moral of the story is that I do things best maybe when I'm, like, pushed into a corner. Otherwise I might have, you know, not told her for the longest time. So that was your first performance and then you carried on performing, I'm assuming, because that's what we're here talking about. Yeah. Where does Giant Dwarf come in? So Giant Dwarf, in 2020, at the end of 2020, I did my very first solo comedy show. So I'd been doing stand-up for two years and then I put this show on. They were having like a queer comedy festival because so many festivals had shut down over COVID, this queer festival was like, hey, here's your chance to perform that show that was cancelled or like that you couldn't do. So I was like, I'm going to do my first ever show. And I wrote this show in six weeks um, because, again, I need a deadline. Like I need to be pushed into a corner to, to, to do something. Hmm. So I debuted this show. It was called Seeking Representation. And it was like, I think just one of the fondest memories of performing that I have because it felt like this big spectacle and like all my friends came out and the venue was full and everyone had such a good time. It was like a party vibe Um, and the show was received so well and everyone was talking about it and I was like, wow, this was a success. Maybe I could have a go in like mainstream comedy. Maybe they will like me sort of thing. Of course, that didn't happen too easily, but at least I knew who, like, my audience were. So it felt really special Mm. to me. And to have that venue kind of backing me. And then they let me come back and I did an encore performance the next Mm. year. And and what was special about that space, that venue? The programmers were queer and so they programmed a lot of queer stuff. Like there was queer comedy, there was drag nights, we did a queer drag musical there. Um, they were really supportive of my show. They obviously did that queer festival. So I think it was all to do with who was managing the venue and they made a very intentional decision to make it more queer, which I think, again, really paid off for people like me and other queer community who are into comedy but don't always feel like it's accessible. A lot of that has to do with the content that we expect to see on a night because, like I said, straight comedy can tend to be punching down. Mm -hmm. And for me, a lot of my comedy, and because I, like, dabble in drag and I dabble in cabaret and stand-up, I try to, like, converge all these communities, bring them together and show them that, Comedy doesn't just have to be, I don't know, that white archetype, straight guy. Other people can enjoy it too. So that's also why, like, this venue was really special Mm. to me. And when did it close? What happened? Yeah, it closed. It was, like, 2021. And that was because of COVID. Like, they just didn't survive the COVID period. 
they couldn't keep running the space. And it was it was sad because it, it, it did help a lot of communities, like the drag community and other queer communities. Like, it just gave them their start. Mm. So what does the loss of that space mean for the queer comedy scene in Sydney? I think um, people kind of branched out and looked to other venues to continue their night and they'd already built up success from Giant Dwarf and I had become involved with a comedy night that was programmed before a quick club night that was started by Salem Barrett Brown and Jacinta Gregory and they would do stand-up and like some mixed alternative performances as well and then people would stick around and just like club all night and I was brought on to help them kind of event produce and sometimes host and then that organically turned into Salem and I putting on our own version of that Um, and when that venue shut down because of COVID we tried another venue that was short-lived and then eventually we started gag So Gag is like a queer comedy cabaret and it was just a space for like queer comedians to just try anything. So we had stand-up, we had drag, musical comedy, like freak show, circus performers, burlesque, pretty much anything that's funny was like allowed to have a go. And over the years it's kind of become my own personal project and, and baby and... I've done a magic mic show with all drag kings that was a huge success. And it's just a special place to have because I don't think, especially with comedy, that queer people are often included. We expect to see kind of the same straight jokes often laden with misogyny, racism, transphobia, um, and a lot of punching down. Mm. Comedy itself can be very exclusionary and maybe a bit pretentious because often people think that it's just stand-up when there are so many other valuable art forms that are actually comedy-based. But you're surely you're not saying that only heterosexual people can be pretentious. (laughs) no not at all no and that's that's true as well is that um not all queer spaces are safe like not all queer spaces are inclusive um certainly that wasn't the experience for me they're not all racially inclusive I've been invalidated so many times for my sexuality in queer spaces and gag was an opportunity to just be like this is who I am, this is what I want to perform. This is my party and if you don't like it, you can fuck off. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it was it was for people like me who kind of didn't feel that included in mm. other spaces or that safe or even people who struggle with like club life and like nightlife and like using drugs and stuff, which is fine, but this was just like more of a mm. chill uh, space. Away from pretentious queers. Oh, those pretentious queers. I don't know if you can get away from them. No, that's true. They're <laughs> always there. They're always popping up somewhere, adding a filter to their Instagram photos. Um, <laughs> so I'm really interested in this and you're talking about spaces not being inclusive, but also the fact that so much of queer socialising is... S- formed around nightclubbing which is a very specific kind of getting together and is difficult for lots of people who feel like they either have to conform or they just have to have no queer friends yeah are you able to talk about your experiences in queer clubbing in sydney yeah i feel like i gave it a really good go and my friends would go out Again, these were the ones that bullied me for being queer and then decided one day that they were queer and they would always go to Birdcage. That was the place to be. And, like, whilst I 
you know, could enjoy the music and often be sober on nights out. I just didn't feel like the people there were my people. I often felt like I was clubbing wrong, like Mm. in a wrong way because I would see them all maybe hooking up with other people and I was like, well, what's wrong with me? And then I was like, well, I'm also shy. Mm. Maybe I don't want this person to kiss me. And then they would all go out to smoke and I'm asthmatic. So (laughs) So I was like, I don't want to do this either. And it it just didn't feel comfy. Mm. Like There wasn't that comfort. I could have a good time dancing, but I was also like, I might also just want to be in bed sort of thing. (laughs) But I mean, when are you not thinking that though? Let's be honest. No, exactly. (laughs) I think that time period is actually quite special to me as well because I met two of my great friends that I have to this day and we would just kind of end up together after these nights out and just talk about what was going on for us. So magical. And we all had, yeah, we all had these similar situations where we were like kind of like, I hate to say it, but like the runt of our respective groups. Each of us were being like, I guess, actively disrespected by these people and we would just find ourselves talking and being like, oh, that's so messed up and this and that. And we were all connected to like this comedy university mm. scene as well. So I'm grateful that I have that from that time. But in terms of queer clubbing and stuff, I don't know. I think it takes a very good, smart, inclusive producer to make a night welcome to like all Mm. people. So I'm going to just like, I just want to state a theory right now. Just want to say something and just see whether or not it resonates at all. Tell me. And I say this as a fellow recovering shyster. No, shyster is different to being shy, right? (gasps) Anyway, so as a fellow recovering shy person, yes, this statement about going out queer clubbing and being like, these are not my people, that resonates with me. That's, you know, my experience in that I felt like I was throwing myself into the scene and really trying but not connecting with people and not being able to make, make friends uh, easily. But is that because we were... We, we, both of us, I'm saying we, um, we're holding bits of ourselves back. (sighs) Interesting. I think, yes, but maybe only as a product of knowing that that wasn't our space. Yeah. Because I know for a fact that I can be really like giving and open Um, And again, like I can party all night long sober. So I don't think it was me. I think it was the environment didn't allow me to really flourish or to really have the best time. And even still, the fact that I was still kind of there and showing up most weeks was like, oh, I'm like really putting an effort in, even though this isn't like that fun for me. It's more fun for you guys. I'm just here to kind of so people don't call me a flake and so I can say that I showed up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if it was more inclusive and whatever, the reasons might be different for you and for me, then we wouldn't have been holding back. So then what do you think absolutely has to be present in order for a space to feel inclusive? Yeah, and I think it's going to be different for, for many people based on what their needs are. But for example, for me, the space just felt really white. People were skinny. It felt like there was only one way to be queer and maybe that was like presenting as butch or a bit Mm -hmm. mask and stuff. And then I was like, oh, maybe I'm not hot. It felt just a bit clicky and I think successful nights cater to everyone and it comes from like the top and it's included in the programming, in the performers. 
I think it says something. If you're if if, if a night draws only to specific people, then you've got to question mm. like why? Why are we only getting like white people through the door, sort of thing? Um, so then, how do you make sure? Like, what what are the things that you're intentionally putting in place with gag in order to make sure that that's inclusive? Yeah, I think just in general, like I try to use inclusive language. I try to kind of I don't address people by what gender I assume they are. I use Auslan interpreting. For me, it's like I I make it a very intentional choice to make the night a safe space Um, through language, through programming, through accessibility, through my demeanor as a host, um, which is like very friendly and warm. And I think not only the performers appreciate it, but the audience appreciates it as well because I think sometimes... Maybe people get caught up in like an act or like sometimes drag nights can be still a bit like mean spirited Mm, sometimes mm. and not everyone is kind of making those efforts to be accessible. Yeah. Or even still, they can be still so binary and, you know, be like you, sir, you there, or even like ladies and gentlemen and stuff like that. I just wanted to be inclusive for most people. And there's something that's very undefinable, intangible, and that is vibes. Yes, exactly. How do you get the vibes? How do you, how do you do it? That's also why I'm like struggling to answer the questions because whilst I know that like I work really hard and, and make these actual tangible things put in place. But I think the vibes come from the energy that's being portrayed on stage. And I think the vibes are set up by the host. The host sets the whole tone of the night. But is that not putting too much pressure on yourself? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> maybe it is. And I tend to do that. And maybe that's why gag is successful but I really think that someone's hosting style says so much about what the night is because sometimes hosts get really shouty and you're like okay like is that what the whole night is going to be or sometimes hosts make fun of their maybe their co-hosts or their acts as part of comedy but again it can just read as mean um yeah, I think it's like actively making sure that people know that they're a part of the joke, like you're bringing them along mm. with you. They are not the butt of the joke. And also it's like they're a paying audience. Like you should treat them respectfully because if they weren't there, then you wouldn't really have a show. Mm-hmm. Does that address the vibes? Maybe the like music does, as well. Yeah, I mean I just think that the, the vibes thing is just a bit of a mystery to me. Yes, I like. I appreciate the point you're making about the host and the MC and the organisers setting the tone and like making sure that that's adhered to through the night. But sometimes you just get like a rotten audience. Like sometimes you just get people <laughs> that are showing up that are just like horrible people. You're so and like right. there are lots of horrible people out there, and sometimes they're just there. And how do you? counteract that like there's some spaces that I've been in where the horrible people don't ruin the evening and then there are some spaces that I've been in where the horrible people like take over and I don't think it's a matter of like the number of people there the size of the venue I think it's like something about the vibes mm. <laughs> and I really hate the fact I've used the word vibe so often <laughs> it's rotten at the core <laughs> maybe for whatever reason, people have come drunk from something mm. else. Maybe it's like a full moon that night. Oh, Maybe please don't. you know <laughs> something. <laughs> <laughs> we had a show once for gag during a red moon, and at intermission, I was like, "Everyone, go outside and look at the moon, and come back and tell me how it is." And, and like, d- did that alter the vibes? Is that what you're saying? 
or you just like you ask them to look at the moon <laughs> yeah i mean people were going out to smoke anyway but but does, I, I what does a red moon mean experience. is it supposed to mean something oh, i don't even know why i'm asking this oh you mean like <laughs> to to our bodies yeah yeah to our rhythmical cycles. i don't know <laughs> i'm really i'm a very bad astrological queer i don't know much i'm a capricorn that's pretty much all i know i I used to kind of kind of like humor it a little bit, but now I'm just like, do not tell me your star sign as a way of explaining your behavior. You're just Same. shit person. <laughs> that is so true. I did try. I tried to understand. I asked my mum for years, like what time was I born? Because that's really important oh, yes. to quiz. Yeah, yeah. And I found out. I found out and I didn't do any further digging. Upon my, what I did do is I went to see a psychiatrist and I got diagnosed. That's what I did. I think that's far oh, more valuable. Yes, your chart here says that your cancer over a Capricorn <laughs> rising. Well, that means that. Oh, oh. Yeah, literally. I don't know what my oh. moon is, what my sun is. I don't know. So just whilst we're moaning about this, people who do Myers Briggs and then are like, "Well, I can't help it. I'm, I'm an INT." DJ, like, oh, what do you expect? I just no. fucking just shut up. <laughs> you know what? I always think about Myers-Briggs and I always think about the fact that, yeah, sure, maybe I did Myers-Briggs when I was like 18, but I didn't retain four <laughs> letters. Like the fact that adults to this day are like, I'm an INTJP. How do you remember that? Did you write it down somewhere? Have you got it tattooed on your inner thigh? Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't mean much. And then people will have it in their, like, dating bio. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oof. I mean, I think it's, like, it is helpful. Like, I think it's helpful for you as a self-reflective tool. But I don't think it's helpful exactly. as a way of explaining your behavior. Like, you can adapt. I don't you think can you change. have to advertise you can, it. Yeah. You can use it to think about how you might want to adapt in different situations, but don't use it as a crutch. Okay, sorry. I agree, or like an identifier. Yeah, like we we cannot be boiled down to four letters. We're complex, messy human beings. Like, I think people take it as seriously as age or height. Wait. They'll be like, I'm 32, oh, I'm okay, an INTJ, yeah. <laughs> and I'm six foot five. Um, okay, so we've gone off on a tangent talking about vibes. Yes, vibes. Vibes. Maybe it's inexplicable. Um, so, I know it wasn't very long ago, but if you think back on the Natalie that went to Giant Dwarf and was launching her first show... Yeah. If you could give her a piece of advice. Wow. What would you say? Yeah. I know what I would say. I'd say keep on this momentum. Keep going. But then you know what? As I said that, I just realized that I did do that. But then disability got in the way. So after that show, I had all this momentum. And I was like gigging all the time. I had. I might have had like two weeks off in 2021 or something. Um, and then I just got massive, massive burnout. Mm. And then that, that's why like now I know I'm autistic and I have sciatica and all this other stuff. So maybe the advice I'd actually give her is don't stress about it stopping and don't place your worth in how much you can deliver and your output because I'm going to have my glow up period again. I may have not been doing that much stuff this year, but it'll start up again. We're, we're only in January. I was thinking last year, oh, 2023. Okay, okay, okay. 2023 <laughs> was the year. <laughs> in 2023, I just focused on my health. Which, you know, is a success in itself because mm. I think sometimes people don't take that time to look at what's going on um, and to actively get better. And did you have lots of unpicking to do in terms of what you were talking about, like your worth being measured by your output? Yeah, I, ha I think I had to sit a lot with 
like I think I look back at last year and I'm like oh I didn't do anything like I'm irrelevant now people have forgotten about who I am I'm not like prominent on the scene anymore but at the same time I had like a lot of reassurance in the fact that even though I was working less I still managed to for example I did my first web series and then I did a second web series and I was like wow like these are my first moments on screen and I achieved them through this really like stagnant period and that gave me solace because I was like the talent's not going anywhere like but, but, it's just but so it sounds like you continued to measure yourself against your outputs <laughs> no I know but um and I think maybe that will never go yeah. away okay so you don't have any tips for me <laughs> No, I think that what is really promising and rewarding is that I did say no to things. Mm-hmm. So I was able to let go. I was able to not have FOMO and, you know, people would ask me to do these performances or like drag and I was like, I can't, like my back is out or I don't have the spoons, etc. Where normally I would be like, if I don't do this performance, then I won't get the next performance mm-hmm. and then I won't have visibility in the community or, you know, yeah, I'll be irrelevant. But I learned to say no to things because I couldn't do them. But I think there'll always be a part of me being that I'm an artist, being that I'm neurodivergent. Like I just seek validation to exist. Mm. It's like my sunshine. Oh, <laughs> well, as long as you accept that about yourself, I kind of want to go and live in a cave yeah. and then like never have to rely on anyone ever again. That's kind of like my aspiration. I know. I think about that sometimes too. But I think I'd get lonely. And you want the applause, right? Yeah, I live for the applause. Do you have any memories of Giant Dwarf, as problematic as that name is, or clubbing from your own scene that you want to share? Well, if you do, I would love to hear all about it. You know I love talking to people. Oh, wait, that sounded really insincere. Anyway, if you do, get in touch. You can do so via my website, which is lostspacespodcast.com, and then there is a section there called Find a Lost Space, and then fill in the form and let me know. Or if that's a bit too much of a bother, why not just get in touch on Facebook or Instagram where you can find me at Lost Spaces Pod. Find out more about Natalie by following them on Instagram and that's at Natty underscore Daddy underscore. Whenever there's an underscore, I get a bit confused. So if you are like me, just go to the show notes for this episode and you'll find the link to Nat's Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you took the time to subscribe, leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, or just tell other people who you think might get a little kick out of it or several kicks out of it. Who's going to stop at one? My name's Kay Anderson and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. Lost Spaces.